0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of an event held live via Zoom during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a conversation with the award-winning author Patrick Ness about his new book, Burn. Joining Patrick in conversation is Readings' own intrepid events manager and longtime Ness fan, Chris Gordon. A quick reminder, as this event has been recorded via the internet, there has been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. Here's Chris.
1: Such a pleasure to have you, Patrick, here talking about your new book, which I'm going to hold up for everyone to see. It's called Burn, and uh, it's a very dramatic cover. I can see other people are holding up their copies as well. It's quite a tremendous story. It's about revenge, redemption, dragons, for God's sake. In a way, when I was reading it, it made me think, Patrick, of a choose-your-own-adventure type of tale, There's sort of alternative universes going on, there's various plot lines. You've thrown a lot into one novel. I did think there was a perfect quote that doesn't happen until page three hundred and five as a summary of this book. Can I can I read it out to you, Patrick? Can you tell me whether you think you wrote it? So I'm presuming, you know. It says something like dragon magic is about the realization of unreal. Realizable possibilities. That's why it's magic. It subsumed reality, subsumed what is real, while all the time worlds spring up again and again, playing out infinite choices in infinite varieties. Would you think that was a fair summary of your book, Burn, Patrick Mess? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. So, what was the influence for this type of book, this type of novel well
2: there was two was two things one is that i always wanted to write a book about dragons um and i had this is book number 12 if you can believe it i've written 12 books Uh, i'm sure all of you own all of the other 11. uh some of the some of which are quite obscure um but uh it's my 12th book and i just you know it's kind of like with more than this i'd always wanted to write a story about being the last person left alive on the planet um, but I needed a story to go with it. That's a premise, that's not a plot. And dragons are a premise, they're not a plot. And so I um, just waited until I got a story. And then I've, all, I've long had this other thought about um, Back to the Future, which is that Back to the Future is only a comedy if you're a straight white guy. If you're anybody else, going back to the 50s would be miserable. Um, because, like my family, for example, is multiracial, really wildly multiracial. And um, when I was doing some research for the book, I discovered that my home state, Washington, uh, legalized interracial marriage in the late 1800s. Um, and obviously, those marriages existed before then, but there were enough there was enough to talk about in the late 1800s to make it legal. So, where are those people? in films about the 20s? Where are those people in films about the 50s? Because they existed, and so what were their lives like? What were the people who look like my family, what were they doing? And uh, I also, I used to work with a woman who was actually born in a Japanese internment camp in America, in California, during World War II. And she grew up in LA in the 50s, and she would tell me these stories about how she and all her girlfriends from high school would go down to the movie studios and hang outside and try to meet the stars because you could do that in the 50s. And like, they met Elvis many, many, many times. And I thought, that's, that's great. I love the story. Where is the Japanese American teenage girl on happy days? You know, where, where is her story, you know, because uh, she was alive then, she was thriving then. What was her life like? And so, you know, and then so, that all really, really interested me, what the 50s might 50s looked like if you weren't, um, you know, this, the, 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 the all white cast we usually get for the fifties. Um, and uh, I thought it just made sense with dragons.
1: Patrick, I was really interested in, in that, uh, in this novel, perhaps more than any of your other novels, that you did describe the sort of ethnic backgrounds. Like I remember a long time ago when you were talking about your chaos trilogy, you talked about how you didn't describe the main characters there because you wanted them to be anyone. You know, that yeah. any any person that was reading them could imagine that they were, this was them. You've ter- you've changed in this novel. You've actually well, made actually, it about, they, right?
2: Yeah, well, I actually changed with book two of Chaos Walking because uh, I discovered that um, people don't do that. They picture the characters as kind of what the author looks like. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Um, you know, I said, okay, well, that's not my intention at all. So I just wanted to make sure that, you know, everyone was welcome. Um, okay. So... Yeah, that, that's why I do it, just to make sure that there's room for everybody.
1: And this book perhaps seems to me a very a very political book in some ways. I know that you've just explained that you said it in the 1950s. It has got the most perfect opening line of all time, uh, which I will encourage all of you to uh, purchase from readings, this book, so that you can read that perfect line. I'm not even going to give it away now. Uh, but there you are. You've set something in the Cold War. You've set something, You've you've set up a, a sort of a, a framework of America versus Russia in some ways.
2: A little bit. Yeah, because I mean, um, I grew up in the 80s and the 80s were a lot like that. And uh, it's slightly different than that now. But what I was really interested in is that the most interesting fiction happens right right as things are going to change. And 1957 was when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik and everything changed. The world completely changed. And it changed to a degree like the internet changed the world. Uh, You know, that's substantial. And so it felt like it it was going to be in the 50s. I thought, well, that's the year where suddenly people can see you. You know, they can, your life is not quite your own in the same way that it was the day before. And so um, it was kind of that. And it was kind of, you know, a way to just, I don't know, look at the countries from... A very personal point of view.
1: Who reckons that? That's
2: probably the most boring answer I've ever given ever to any question ever I do. So it wasn't. It's still Tuesday. We are stuck in the past.
1: (laughs) I don't think it was boring at all. Patrick, I was just thinking, imagine what people are going to say about the first half of 2020 as another sort of pivotal point in history. Oh,
2: 2020 can just yeah, jump down the toilet Let me just go yeah. straight to 2021, please. 2020 is yeah. fast.
1: Yeah, it's worn us all out. It's worn us out to the core. So this is another book, though, where there is a sense of an odyssey where people are going on some sort of journey for an end result. I mean, this is what the whole book is about. They're, they're, and, and there's several sort of journeys within it. What is it about you that just loves this... Uh, a character from one place to the other what what is that about were you a boy scout as a kid no what happened
2: oh uh, uh, no. No, no i don't join no no i don't no. <laughs> um but i mean all fiction is about journeys of some kind i mean you've got to have some characters even if it's an emotional one um yeah so i mean not really i, I think most of my books are about kind of um what happens after the end of the world? How do you pick yourself back up and start the world again? Uh, because I mean, especially if you're young, the world feels like it's ending every day. It really does feel like it's ending every day. And it is ending every day. That's why it feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> so the question isn't, isn't um, how to stop the world from ending. It's how do you start again when it ends? And how do you build a new world, a better one? So yeah, I suppose that's the kind of journey I'm always thinking about, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I love it because it is a sense uh, that you're watching people grow as the as the story goes along. Like you're watching them develop their resilience, their bravery, their courage. Is there? Yes, yeah, you, it. <laughs> you are. You are the master of all of that. So, what's more fun to write, Patrick? Is it more fun to write about the people whose journeys are making them better people, or the journeys that are about the characters where we're seeing some sort of uh, demise in their character? So Uh, basically, is it more fun to write the baddies or the goodies?
2: Well, I mean, it's more fun to write something that feels satisfying and earned. You know, I mean, it's, it's always more fun to write a bad guy. It tends to because the devil has the best tunes, you know what I mean? And they can get away with the most. But it's just satisfying to... There's a moment where a character called Malcolm, uh, who has been raised in a cult that worships dragons, which is an interesting question to me. Is like, how, what kind of believer are you if you can see your god flying around every day? How would that affect your faith? Um, so he's been raised in this cult, and he's been sent on a mission to assassinate someone. He fully believes in this mission. He thinks it's completely right, um, and that uh, no questions. You know, he's this is the only thing he's known. He has no qualms about it whatsoever and then he meets a boy um and there's a sentence where he says he steps into the camp campfire circle of the campfire and meets nelson and thus the fate of billions are changed and that to me is the interesting thing because when you're when you're a teenager it's that first time that you step away from your family and say i'm no longer this thing i'm something new and i've said that a lot and that to me is the YYA at its best is the most interesting because it's about the violence of that decision and that realization. And the importance of questioning what you were so that you can find out who you are. And that, that way that we all have to have that moment one way or another, big or small, where what we believed in shifts. Um, it can shift in a good way. That can be a real confirmation of what we believed in. That can be a rebuttal to everything we believed in. Um, but that is an interesting moment really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, for Malcolm, that shift kind of changes the question of good and bad, because it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a, uh, is he good or is he bad? He's doing he's aiming for this bad thing, but is he essentially bad? And that to me is more interesting than just writing a goodie or a baddie.
1: And I guess one of the things that I feel like that you do so, so well, Patrick, is that you do that notion of the flutter of a butterfly wing, you know, what are the end consequences of this? Here's that moment. And then what happens because of that moment?
2: Yeah. I mean, well, we're all connected. We really, really are all connected. And, uh, um, you know, and so at the, the idea of watching out for your fellow human being um, shouldn't be as radical as it is. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't have to fight for that to take care of each other. And yet we somehow seem to, um,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean that's, and so in narrative terms, in narrative terms, I, I really wanted a story where the plot really worked, you know? Cause I mean, um, I've, said this, I've said this before as well, but if you, there are writers, if you listen to them talk, they'll say, oh, plot's not important. I'd love to write a book where nothing happens. Ha, 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 troddle, troddle, troddle. And if you, I guarantee you to an author, an author who says the plot is not important is an author who cannot plot. There's people who just can't do it. And so they say it's not useful. And I don't believe that it's as useful as any other tool that you write with. And so I really wanted a story where plot really mattered, not in a cheap way, but in that when this happens, that causes these other things to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that spreads out like a web or like um, cracks across the ice of a lake. And how does that affect people that you care about and how does that, where can you be surprised in that? And so, yeah, the the, this book is very much about consequences and about being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. And and, uh, sometimes that's an accident. I mean, the joke in this is that it opens with Sarah Dewhurst who's just about to turn 16. She lives on a farm in the Pacific Northwest where I'm from. And uh, she and her father are, are so poor that they've had to hire a dragon to work on their farm, which is something only the very poorest people have to do. And the dragon who comes uh, is called Casimir He's a Russian blue dragon, uh, which is rare in that part of the country, but he comes with a prophecy. And one of the central jokes of the story is that he's got this prophecy, but he doesn't quite know what it means. And it's sort of that's sort of me kind of making fun of the, I've used prophecy before a lot, and prophecy is a big plot point in lots of YA fiction, and so just the idea that when she keeps asking him about this prophecy, and he just sort of goes, "Well, just have to see," which is, you know, kind of not what the point of prophecy is, and uh, so that that kind of stuff makes me laugh. And uh, that is, you know, is a prophecy only a prophecy if it self fulfills? If you are told you're going to do something, are you going to do it because you were told that you would do it, or because you you know do it naturally? So. I'm interested in that kind of stuff. And that kind of stuff just makes me laugh because it all ultimately ends up in a mess. We never know the consequences of all our actions. You can just try to do your best and stand back up when you screw up and apologize to the right people and keep striving to do, do your best. Um, which does sound quite Boy Scouty, but I am not a Boy Scout.
1: <laughs> what, so uh, uh, this obsession with the, uh, wanting to write a book about a dragon, a beautiful dragon, uh, a dragon that doesn't quite know what the prophecy is. Where did that come from? It was that is that been influenced by someone or another book or?
2: Well, I mean, uh, he's not beautiful. He's he's what? got so he's got stitches over one eye. Uh, you know, there's still the, the thread there so he's only got one eye. He's kind of a. I variety. thought it sounded pretty good,
1: Patrick. Second. It sounded a bit like a some sort of pirate dragon. That's what I. Yeah.
2: So you know, the thing about pirates is that they look sexy from a distance, but when you get up close, boy, do they smell. So that's my thinking about, uh, he's a bit of a laborer. But um, I, there's a movie um, from the very early 80s, when I was very small, called Dragon Slayer. And there have been other dragon movies since. There's Dragon Heart, which is terrible. And there's Rain of Fire, which is also terrible. Um, but Dragon Slayer is very good. Even it stands up, it's a stop motion dragon, but it is still, it is just majestic and powerful. And and I think nothing says magic and power clearer to us than dragons, because dragons are in pretty much every culture in the world of one way or another, you know, they obviously come from reptiles and snakes and so on, but the idea of this giant, powerful, obviously ostentatiously magical thing is very appealing. And, uh, and I like dragons that talk because I like the mythology of dragons as being intelligent. Um, and and I thought, What's that?
1: And wise. They always... Your, your dragons are very wise. A little greedy. Yeah,
2: they're, they're a bit snarky. Yeah, they're a bit sarcastic. I mean, because they're kind of arrogant because they're dragons. Mm. Uh, but um, I just... I thought Smaug in the Hobbit movies, which were endless... Uh, talked far too much. And it was just blah, 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 like shh, shh. So I wanted a talking dragon who talked how I thought a dragon would, which is more like a cat, you know? There's always that thing that um, cats can probably talk, they just choose not to. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so that that seems what dragons, dragons are like. So I, I just, I love them as a little kid. I love the dragon and Dragon Slayer. You should all look up Dragon Slayer. It's a really great early 80s Disney movie um and uh yes what's that there's just there's a power and a majesty and a magic to it
1: it seemed to me like you were having a lot of fun getting into the thoughts of the dragons that are in this book imagining what it was like to fly across a city yeah near victims i think it's it it seemed to me that your writing was you were just having such tremendous fun patrick well, it
2: goes back to an old philosophy of mine, which um, you might have, and might have all heard me talk about before, but I'm gonna just go yes. on about it again, which is that I truly, truly believe that there's no such thing as the realistic novel. All fiction is fantastical, even if it looks like our world right now today. It is still a construct. It is still a universe of characters arcing towards their destinies with coincidences and climaxes and, and you know, neat plot lines stitched together. So I think that all fiction is fantasy and all that you need to do is create a fictional universe where your story can logically take place. And that to me is the challenge, that if I'm gonna have a 1950s America with dragons in it, I've really got to answer all those questions convincingly of what would society be like? What would negotiations with the dragon be like? What would the history behind that be like? And it's not all in the book, but it informs the book because I've really tried to think it out and try to think it through um and so the more you can do that the more real it feels and so you start to think well this of course there should be dragons and of course if there were dragons this is what they would feel like um this is what the life with them would be like so it's it's really trying to just make sure that my imagined universe is accurate um accurate for the terms of the fiction that i'm writing um because then well it feels like a place you could step into that you'd understand and, uh, and that just makes for a better story. And so, of course, I ask, what if there was a dragon in 1957 flying over Seattle, because Seattle is the, big, the closest big city, um, what does that look like to a dragon? You know, and what does the, what is the smell? What can they smell from the freeway? And what can they, what does Seattle look like from the air if you're circling around it, um, lower than an airplane? You know, so it's, it's uh, what is it, what would it really look like? And so that's, that kind of thing really interests me because that's why I think fiction can crack open a new world and crack open a, a point of view and a way of seeing that I think is really can be really, really magical.
1: And you did that. You, you cracked open a whole new world in this book. I mean, part two is...
2: A whole fantastic point of view.
1: <laughs> Here we go again. I love that. It made me... It reminded... no, it's
2: a song. It's a Disney song. I was, I, I was going to keep going, but I do not know the third line on <laughs> the world. A fantastic point of view, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, this, you know, the, you know the song. it's the crappy ballad that always wins the Oscar and the other songs are better.
1: Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, Patrick, I know that you're a huge sort of science fiction fan and that you wrote for uh, Doctor Who. Is that, is that right? You wrote one of the stories in a Doctor Who 50th kind of celebration?
2: I do, I also wrote an entire spin-off series called class which was eight episodes on the BBC so rather more work than a <laughs> short story but yeah I have yeah
1: and okay. uh, Patrick did you uh, is that something that you grew up with watching Doctor Who is that
2: uh, no 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 I'm from America I mean I, I I
1: couldn't even get it at all There.
2: no we I mean we had like we had Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica uh, the original Battlestar Galactica which is really bad um so no i didn't see doctor who until i moved there and they did the reboot in 2005. um so uh no it wasn't part of my childhood certainly not in the way star trek was yeah Uh, so i do i do watch i do watch the new star treks the discovery and picard which i wish was better oh it's just not very good um but maybe it'll get better but it's so far it's not um so yeah so it's more i'm more more that but more it's more um it's something I've always argued, which is the importance of not being a snob about culture uh, because great stories can exist everywhere and bad stories can exist everywhere. And so I always get sort of defensive on panels because it's frequent on YA panel that you'll, somebody on the panel will say, well, YA fiction is just so much better than literary fiction. Well, no, it isn't, but it's not worse either. It's their, their fields of art. And like any field of art, there are a few things that are genius. There's some more, it's a greater number that are really good. And then there's a lot of stuff that's average, which is what every field of art is. And so uh, I don't think one is better than the other. They're just different with serving different needs and you can find great stuff either place. So just be a snob and don't be a snob, but just don't be a snob in either direction. And which is why you can find great stories in science fiction. You can find bad stories in science fiction, but you can find good stories anywhere, I think. That is is my call to arms. Don't be a snob about what you read.
1: As a bookseller, I completely support that idea, completely. Patrick, I'm getting in a few questions from our audience, but I've also got a series of questions that are not about Burn, that are from a a lovely little high school very close to where I live called Fitzroy High, which is an alternative school, and the kids at that school are studying A Monster Calls. Okay. And uh, is it okay? I've, I've, they've asked a lot, of lot of questions, but I've just chosen three. Are you comfortable to answer them?
2: Of course, yeah. And hello to Fitzroy School.
1: Ah, thank and you.
2: And probably Henry VIII's bastard son, <laughs> who badly died aged 18 of tuberculosis. I am reading the Wolf Hall trilogy. I know a lot of tutors in my head now. So
1: yeah. Wow, wow. Well, look, I think at times they probably feel exactly like that. But uh, Ruben has asked from Fitzroy High. To what extent did your ideas come from the first author in A Monster Calls?
2: Come from the witch in A Monster
1: Calls? The first first author, which
2: was... Oh, Siobhan Dowd. Well, she had, um, Siobhan had written about a thousand words, um, which established Connor and his mother, and then the idea of a monster, although her monster was actually more of a grandmotherly figure um, in her version, and... She had an idea that, the, mo- that the, the monster would tell three stories. And she said, I've got great ideas for these stories and that she didn't write those ideas down. Um, so then I just kind of took it from there. And I, I always say that it's like being handed a baton or baton, if you're from England, uh, where I needed to, I couldn't try to guess what she would do. I just had to do um, what any author would do, which is let it grow and let it see where it went. And so she was the foundational idea and the sort of soil from which it all grew. Um, and so, and her loss is really, really terrible. It was a really huge loss to, to children's fiction, I think. Um, so there was some of it, but it's kind of like a cake. You know, you can't separate the egg and the sugar from a cake once it's, when the cake is made. And I really believe that. It's, uh, it's kind of all of us together. This is the least I've ever sworn in an event, by the way. And that's because I can see Olivia and Ishika, or Ishika? And I'm trying to watch my language. Hi.
1: <laughs> Patrick Matilda from Fitzroy. Hi. I
2: have to say, by the way, I have to say in all of my travels all over the world, I have only been told off and complained about twice for, for
1: my that. language,
2: for my language. And once was in rural Illinois and the other was the Sydney writers festival. No. Yep. Oh Yeah. Yeah, Margaret Court has wielded her influence.
1: (sighs) Well, I'm impressed that you knew about Margaret Court and also sad. She's a bit of a kangaroo on tennis.
2: There you go. Anyway, question number two from these lovely kids.
1: (laughs) I just want you to know that we're very relaxed out here in Melbourne and so you can speak (laughs) freely and everyone would be delighted if, if, you know, there was a slip. Uh, Matilda has asked, what happens next in A Monster Calls?
2: I really try to keep that question open. You know, I've got uh, all of my books. I truly really try to have open endings because that's how I believe life is one story finishes, but there's a whole bunch of stories left to tell. I mean, i really, really believe that. And I, I've, if I've done my job right, then the world of the book feels big enough for there to be more stories to be told. But this story is done, but I try not to interfere. You know, I hope Connor is doing okay. I think he is. I really think he is. I think he's done everything he needs to do to get to a place where he can move on. Um, but I want to let him choose his own destiny. So uh, I think he's okay, but I'm, I'm happy that it's a mystery.
1: And this is the very final question from Fitzroy High, Patrick. And I think it feels like it's a, a question that could be asked of any of your wonderful, wonderful stories and screenplays. And it's from a, a young woman called Goldie, and she says... Patrick, Patrick Ness, how do you create such wild stories for all of your monsters? Well,
2: I, um, Patrick, Patrick Ness, I like that.
1: Goldie, Goldie,
2: Goldie. <laughs> um, I would just say, I, because of what I believe about the different, that there is no such thing as a realistic story, then my approach to storytelling is always, why not go big? You know, why not really, really swing for the rafters to use a baseball metaphor? You know Why not try? You know, if you, if you don't try to shoot the moon, you're never gonna hit the moon. You know, you, you might not hit it anyway, but if you try, you might come up with something really interesting. And so that's where it comes from. I just, uh, I want it to, I want my stories to be as full-throated and full-blooded as I can possibly make them. Um, and uh, I don't wanna feel trapped by a world that I've made that's too small. I want it to feel bigger and I want it to be, I want there to be a lot going on that isn't in the main story. And that's really important to me. So it's a good question though. Maybe that little jaunty tune you hear is my dryer finishing. So oh. if I don't know if you hear it, it oh, plays a shanty for some reason when the dryer is done.
1: <laughs> I like that, it's talking to you. Yeah. Uh, just to follow up from that, another person that's actually on our forum here today, Emily has asked, uh, do you plan it out? Have you got, a huge sort of draft of the plot as you're going along. Are you, have you got like a flow chart, I guess, is what she's asking. Uh,
2: I'm looking for Emily. You're hiding Emily? There oh, she is. Hi. No name. Hi, hi. Emily. Uh, well, first of all, the, mo- the big important thing is that no one can tell you how to write. They can only tell you how they write. And that is really important because there are many, many ways up the mountain. And uh, if you get to the end of the book, you did it right. So I've got, I've got author friends who do plan out everything. I've got one who plans for months and then he'll write the whole book in about a month and a half, which to me is crazy. I could never do that. Um, for me, I like having enough so that I don't feel lost, but not so much that I can't create on the day. And so I will often have, I will often know how it begins and ends. Um, not always. I used to, it used to be always, but I've tried to relax that a bit because I don't want to feel constrained by some kind of superstition. But I usually have big, big or small images somewhere in the book, three or four, that feel really compelling, that I'm writing towards. So there's enough of a path going from this image to that image where I have something in sight, but there's enough room on, on the way to make stuff up. Like the example I always use is enough of Never Letting Go, I knew that a certain character would die. You all know who I'm talking about if you've read the book. Um, I knew, but I also, on a small level, there's a scene where Todd and Viola are on a cart in the middle of these herds of animals who sing to one another. And that felt really compelling, even though it's not super important to the plot. Um, it was just, that image felt really, really strong. And so I would write from one to another, but the character of Wilf, who is one of my favorite ever characters, uh, he didn't show up until the day, to the day he appeared on the page. I didn't think about him in advance, he was just there. So there are, that's, that to me is my, my best combo um, for, for creation, but take what, you, take what works for you and leave the rest, because I mean, really there is way more than one path up the mountain. Yeah.
1: You're a very generous man, Patrick. We've got time for a few more questions and I'm going to uh, ask, and if this is possible, I don't know whether it is for someone like you, if you can answer these questions with just one word. I don't know. It's like a challenge, a personal challenge for you on this Tuesday night in LA. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And then we'll finish off with a couple more questions from the audience and our time will be nearly over, sadly. So this is just questions so we get to know a little bit more about you uh, over our lunch. So, Patrick, are you tea or coffee? Neither. Live music or dancing at home? So you can say live or home. Uh,
2: live music until I got old enough that my back started hurting when I had to stand up at concerts for too long. Uh, yeah, so but, uh, live music mostly. If I, I can if I can sit down now, yeah. I saw the Decemberists. Movies <laughs> so or I TV series? And I loved the December but my back was killing me by the end. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead.
1: So, movies or TV series? Both. Mm-hmm. Do you write in the morning or the afternoon? Both. Mm. Do you read in bed or on the couch?
2: Bed. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, a couple more questions from, now we can answer with more words. Thank you for that. Thank you for being kind. Uh, when are the Chaos Trilogy movies coming out? Sarah has asked that. Wave, Sarah. There's Hi, she. Sarah. Uh,
2: The release date for the United States is January 21st of 2021. So it's this coming January. I really don't know the dates for the rest of the world. Genuinely don't.
1: We'll um, let you know. We're desperate. Uh, it, won't We're won't
2: desperate. Be, it won't be long after that, I'm sure. So, uh,
1: And then there's some questions from some young people here. Olivia and Ishko have asked, what inspired you, Patrick, to become a writer?
2: Well, I well, felt like when I would write stories in class at school, they would tend to go well. People would respond the way that I um kind of wanted them to respond and when i was really young a lot of that is mimicry it's just sort of recreating what i'd seen but that's okay that's how i've you know it's how you figure out plot and your voice you know um but i kind of looking back i kind of think it's like i cannot sing man i cannot sing it is really i have a terrible terrible singing voice but for those people who can sing i imagine it's what they feel when people respond to them singing So people would respond to that when I wrote a story and they, and that felt really kind of magical. And uh, so I just kept at it. And I have a, I have a real important saying, which is that uh, real writers don't write, they write anyway. I didn't think anybody would publish a book of mine. I wrote one anyway. I didn't think anybody would film a screenplay of mine. I wrote one anyway. Uh, To me, that is what real artists do. I think that sounds really pretentious. I'm calling myself an artist, but you know what I mean? I think, if you're a real writer, you're a real writer. You're going to write anyway, regardless if somebody tells you you'll never be published. Well, what do they know? I come from a teeny tiny town. I am by a mile the most famous person from my town, and I'm not even on my town's Wikipedia page, by the way. Um, but uh, I am by a country mile and the most famous person from my town, and um, uh, which is not a hard achievement for my little town. But. Uh, uh, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't, by all the rules of success and connections, be here today. But I wrote anyway. And here
1: I am. And here you are. And here we are. Can I? I know that you won't do this, Patrick, so I'm just going to do a little call-out to all the fans out there to check out Patrick's website. He's got an excellent, excellent section on writing and how to get published and how to write and his inspirations. It's a gift for anyone that aspires to be a writer or is, in fact, just wanting to know more about Patrick Ness's writing style.
2: Cool. I'm good with that.
1: And the very final question that I've got for you right now, Patrick, and uh, so sadly because we have run out of time, is what are you reading now?
2: What am I reading now? Um, I am um, I'm about 200 pages from the end of the final book in the Wolf Hall trilogy.
1: Yes, as you said before. Um, yeah. Do uh, you read multiple books at the same time?
2: I usually do. Um, uh, I've been rereading just as sort of a casual project um, because he was so important to me as a teenager, as an early teenager. In the years before the vast field of YA, I, uh, read, I read Stephen King like crazy when I was sort of 11 and 12. And so I've been on a many, many years long project of rereading them in order and getting to books I haven't read before. So I'm up to Gerald's game um, you know, and they, you know, they are not all masterpieces, let's put it that way, you know. But um, but there's there's something there. There's something that just, he's got some ingredient.
1: Well, he, brings, is- he makes everyone very real, doesn't he? I still get nightmares about pet cemetery. It's actually-
2: Pet Cemetery is actually a really terrific book. It is, it is I think it's very one of his very very best and it is genuinely scary. So I
1: guess, yeah. I guess in some ways it, his writing asks the same sort of questions that you ask too, like in that sense of obligation or the flutter of a butterfly wings, what would you do in this yeah. situation? That's what you ask, I think, in your writing.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of mostly through his super mega cocaine adult phase, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, because <gasps> it it my god it is great and then that ending is a catastrophe um, yeah. so, um so i'm kind of getting there i'm kind of getting through to into his more mature books um uh, but he's he a saint for the number of young people he's gotten to read books and i won't hear words said against him
1: mm, i agree read what read whatever rocks your boat really 100
2: 100 unless it's twilight which is crap
1: mm, i agree with that i'm okay with that I think that's a good way to finish up. I just want to show everyone your book again, Burn. I, I know people will be saying, is there going to be a sequel? I'm not sure. I mean, you've already got two books in one here, two stories in one. Is there going to be a sequel?
2: I mean, I meant I mean it as a standalone. Yeah. But like all of my books, it, it is open-ended and there's more. there's more that could be told. So we'll see. I don't know. Never say never.
1: I want to thank you're, you're your this one
2: no. it, it, You're not going to be left on a cliffhanger. It's you know it resolves all the plot. You know the plot's there. The plot's important because I uh, know how to plot.
1: You, you <laughs> really do. And Patrick, I want to say that uh, in these sort of troubled times or whatever we like to call the landscape that we find ourselves in, this seemed to me the most perfect read. It, it took me right out of reading news. It took me far, far away from the realities of my own life, working from home. What a joy that is. Uh, So thank you, Patrick. Thank you for letting me escape when I couldn't really. I really appreciate it. I can't recommend this extraordinary book enough. I can't. Thank you, Patrick Ness, for your generosity, your kindness with us tonight. Thank you so, so much. What a
2: treat. A big wave to Ishika, who's got her own copy, I can see. It. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: thank, yeah you thank you all very
2: much. Thanks for coming on a, on a midday, on a Wednesday. So, hello from the past. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, you just
1: say that again as dramatically as possible?
2: <laughs> I'm good. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much. Have a good rest later. of your day. Really enjoyable. Thanks a lot.
1: Bye-bye now.
0: You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. There you can sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast were provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and the sovereignty was never
1: ceded.